What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. It is March 2nd. I am Teddy Cahill. With Joining me today is Joe Healy, and we have a new Baseball America Top 25 over on the website. You can check that out there. It was an exciting third weekend of college baseball. We had the Shriners College Classic. We had Georgia playing Georgia Tech on a weekend for the first time in 61 years. We had Clemson and South Carolina. We had we had a lot of stuff going on this weekend, so Joe, we're uh, we've got a lot to talk about today on, on the podcast as it relates to college baseball. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the 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 big weekend that we talked about on the podcast last week kind of ended up living up to that hype. Um, we had a lot of interesting results out there, and of course that that made our lives a little bit more difficult in ranking teams. I mean, statistically speaking, we're going to get a week sooner or later where it's easy to rank um, or relatively easy to rank the teams because everybody won and it just kind of ends up being a lot of chalk. But uh, this was, again, not that week and probably was never going to be that week when I look back on it, just given the how many ranked versus ranked games we had. And we had a whole cluster of them, for example, in Houston. And um, so it was always probably going to be a tough week to rank, but it was especially tough. Um, you know, given just kind of the type of carnage and, and we'll get into this, but when you have the two most successful teams in Houston being unranked Baylor and unranked, unranked Mizzou, uh, you're bound to have some tough decisions to make. And, and boy, did we ever. Yeah, that uh, that's a fair assessment. And uh, you, you mentioned all of that action in, in Houston. I was I was at Minute Maid Park to, to see all of that at the Shriners College Classic. Uh, always a, a great time. At the tournament, we, we mentioned before that it was the 20th anniversary and, you know, the the Shriners Hospital for Children, um, you know, they they, uh, they do a really great job incorporating, you know, their patients into the baseball. The baseball is fantastic, but, but for me, the highlight uh, every year is seeing how the players interact with those kids and just how meaningful the weekend is is for those kids to to be around the teams to be around the baseball and and, and to get the opportunity 
to to just soak it all in in what was a fantastic environment in Houston. There were there were 15,000 people uh, at the tournament the first two days. Uh, the third day's attendance, you know, Sunday wasn't quite as good, but it was it was very good uh, again, especially for the morning session with with LSU and Oklahoma, and we'll, we'll get to that game in a second. But overall, really good tournament again this year, and and you had Baylor come out at three and one, you had Missouri go two and one. Uh, the Big Twelve overall, it was it was a Big Twelve SEC challenge format. And the Big 12 went six and three against the mighty SEC. And, and Joe, we'll, we'll get to more about the SEC's not so hot weekend in a minute. But you know, if you consider that, plus Mississippi State getting beaten at Long Beach, plus Kentucky getting swept at home by UNC Wilmington, and you know uh, Vanderbilt very nearly losing a home series to Hawaii, and you know it. It was it was an interesting weekend for the SEC, but just specifically to to the the tournament, were you surprised to see the Big Twelve you know come into Houston and go six and three? Yeah, I, I was. I mean, I, I didn't think that um, I didn't think that either side was really going to get just rolled. I thought it'd be a pretty even split. So to see the Big Twelve come out on top is is a little bit surprising to me. And I think it's because I mean to, to look at the big picture, I, I think a lot of that is because. Those teams came into the weekend, and we talked about this in previewing it. Those teams came into the weekend with a lot more questions, or so we thought. You know, we weren't sure to make what to make of Baylor coming off of losing a series to Oral Roberts, and Oklahoma was pitching well, and, and boy did they ever over the weekend. But um, the offense was still a question mark, and, and Texas were still kind of waiting to see what they are, and there are any number of outcomes for them. And when you took that on the whole, and then looked at the other side and said, well, Arkansas is really rolling. And we really like LSU's talent. We had them ranked in the top 15. And, you know, we know Mizzou is going to is gonna pitch well. So that just felt more certain, <laughs> that side of the ledger. Uh, but then the Big 12 comes in, goes 6-3. and three, And obviously a big part of that was, you know, what really kind of upset the apple cart here was just kind of the shocking 0-3 weekend for Arkansas, which was the team that, you know, we went into the weekend and I said, you know, this is a weekend where Arkansas can really go in there and dominate this field and go three and zero and show that hey look we're you know we're the team to beat in the SEC West uh, far and away and we're a team that should be considered among the the the, the national you know the top contenders for the national title and this was that opportunity and and it was the opposite they you know they end up going zero and three and um you know there there are certainly some questions to be asked there now um. So that was really, to me, that's really kind of what maybe upset the balance a little bit is you didn't expect that. If Arkansas, you know, wins a couple of games there, suddenly you're talking about a more more even split. So I think that's really where the the balance shifted, but certainly a good week uh, for the Big 12 at large, particularly for, for a Baylor team that, you know, you, you look at the stats and you look at the results and you're still maybe even in hindsight, not sure exactly how they pulled it off, but here they are. And um, certainly this kind of writes the ship for them after that, that kind of, uh, down weekend losing two or three to an Oral Roberts team that in and of itself has been up and down so far this year. Yeah, the the Baylor three and O and the Arkansas own three, you know, really, really were not what I, I don't think anyone would have expected this weekend. And, you know, for Mizzou to be the only SEC team above five hundred in the tournament was definitely not what anyone would have would have expected coming into it. So yeah, it it, it was a little weird. Uh, but you know sometimes weird things happen at Minute Maid. It's a it's a big environment. It's a different stadium. We talked about some of the quirks there, and you know Baylor for one just seems to really play up to the the tournament. 
every time that, that they come and, and they put on a really, really good show, at least in the last, you know, five years under Steve Rodriguez, that, that seems to be the, the Bears MO in, in Houston is that they come in and play really well in that environment. So Big 12 goes six and three. And one of the big stories coming out of it was how well Oklahoma pitched because Dane Acker threw a no-hitter on, on Sunday in, in Oklahoma's finale against LSU. It was uh, a phenomenal game. Acker and LSU starter A.J. Labus had dueling no-hitters through seven innings. That was, uh, that was different. I can't say I've, I've done that before. And you, know, you, you see the, the way that, that those two guys go at it, and it, it, was, it was awesome. To, to watch and then Justin Mitchell ultimately hits uh, a home run on the first pitch of the eighth inning to give Oklahoma the lead that's Oklahoma's catcher so he he really had a big hand in, in all of this as well and then Acker comes out and, and grinds through the last two innings with that one run lead and, and Oklahoma goes on and, and gets a, a big big win when you look at what, what that meant for the Sooners, that meant they went 2-1 and one on the weekend, and, and it meant that they go home feeling really good about themselves. LSU, on the other hand, goes 1-2 and two and, and goes back to Baton Rouge with, with some questions. But Acker's performance in the moment was, was phenomenal, uh, and it really showcased just how good Oklahoma pitching can be when you have Cade Cavalli, who struck out 11 in five innings on Friday night, and they brought in some some really talented relievers and Wyatt Olds and and Jason Ruffcorn to, to close that game out. And, um, you know, Levi Prater started the second game really well, didn't finish it quite as well. And the Oklahoma bullpen um, gave up four runs to Missouri to, to blow the lead ultimately. But oh, in totality, it was it was an impressive pitch and performance on the weekend for the Sooners, really highlighted by by Acker's sensational day. Yeah, heck of a day for him individually, and, and I think it that's important for uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, it, it really does, uh, you know, show, to your point, show kind of the ceiling of what Oklahoma can accomplish on the mound. That was always the the unit that, that we felt most strongly about when it comes to to Oklahoma. But if, if Dane, Dane Acker is not, this is breaking news, Dane Acker is not going to throw a no-hitter every time out. However, it does show what he is capable of when he's really going well. And so the other thing that that does, though, is that you t- you mentioned Levi Prater and how he started well and maybe didn't finish well and uh, I'm not this is not any sort of inside you know information or anything like that but I'm just saying it does kind of open up the possibility of if they decide you know Wyatt Olds has started in the past they have a really good midweek guy in Ben Abram um, it does open up the possibility of you know Skip Johnson and his staff looking around and saying um, you know we could maybe flip Prater into some sort of um, reliever role where he's throwing twice in the weekend or he throws a five innings here or five innings there. Um, it does kind of feel like it opens up a little bit of flexibility for Oklahoma if they want to go that direction. Or if it felt going into the season, like, you know, Acker's a little bit of a question mark as a junior college transfer, uh, limited D one experience. You just a little bit with rice when he first got to college, but in the beginning, it kind of felt like it was going to be okay. Cavalli's going to have to be a dude, and it looks he's certainly tracking that way. A 28 to two strikeout to walk ratio is uh, for those keeping score at home pretty good. Um, so he's tracking that way, and then Prater behind him was going to have to be what he was last year, and he still very well may not. I am certainly not off the Levi Prater bandwagon, 
But I'm just saying it does kind of give them a little bit of flexibility. They maybe weren't sure they were going to have before. And so I think that's that's huge. And obviously the offense is the bigger question for Oklahoma. But I wrote this in the top 25 recap that the Oklahoma offense has been has been perfectly good and that no more, no less. Um, You know, if they hit like they have so far this season, I think they're going to be in really good shape given what they can do offensively. Are they going to have games where one of those starting pitchers shoves and they lose two to one? Absolutely. <laughs> like, I think that is that is bound to happen. But they're also positioned to win a lot of games four to one um, because they, they have swung the bat fairly well. Um, not great, uh, but they also haven't um, they haven't really been an, an anchor for the team so far. So they'll have to keep that going. Uh, but early returns suggest that, that this team has shown offensively enough improvement to give you confidence that this is more than what they were last year when a lack of punch in the lineup really kind of hamstrung what they were able to do. Yeah, and I think two pretty big developments that we've seen so far have, have kind of given you more confidence that, that the offense can be that. You know, Tanner Treadway uh, was a, a factor last season, but now he is he's crushing the ball right now. I don't know how long that's going to last. He's hitting above 400. Obviously, he's going to come back to earth on some level. But if he can continue to be a big-time offensive force in the Oklahoma lineup, that's significant. And then freshman third baseman Peyton Graham is looking really good in, in that order as well. And so if those two guys can, can keep it going on uh, a, a pretty high level and then you know, you throw in Hardman and, and uh, you know, Justin Mitchell's been going pretty good, too. And you got like a guy like Brady Lindsay. And, and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it looks like a pretty solid lineup, especially when you consider the fact that, that Oklahoma is not going to be asking uh, it, its offense to give it, you know, five, six, seven runs a game. They will be will be able to win a lot of games four to two or you know, three to one or whatever with, with this pitching staff. So. Um, you know, outstanding outing for Dane Acker, Oklahoma's first no hitter since 1989. First time LSU had been no hit since 1978. First no hitter in the history of the Shriners College Classic. Uh, all of that that goes to to Dane Acker, who uh, who really pitched uh, an amazing game. And I don't want to lose sight of what AJ Labus did either. That was uh, that was a really phenomenal outing for him as well, and really goes a long way to to showcasing what. LSU has on the mound uh, as well. When 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 those are your Sunday starters, you're you're living right uh, for both LSU and Oklahoma. So we've kind of talked around the idea that that Baylor went three and zero, but you know, Joe, when you when you saw what the Bears did, you know they 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 rolled through this this tournament three and zero. They they didn't really dominate any one of these games, but they just found, kept finding ways to win. And they did it in some different ways. You know, they, they did it with, with some, some good offense. They, they, they pitched it pretty well. And, you know, when you look at it, it, uh, it might not have been the most impressive. But coming off of that series loss to Oral Roberts, this was, this was a big-time result for the Bears. Yeah, I mean, it, it really does kind of set them back on a course to, to challenge to be a, a, a postseason team. And not that... Not that this early in the season anyone is necessarily out of it, especially when you play in a conference like the Big 12, where you're going to have opportunities to kind of get back on the horse. But with that being said, you know, a series lost to Oral Roberts, and on its face, a series lost to Oral Roberts doesn't sound all that bad because we know Oral Roberts to be what it is. But, you know, Oral Roberts has been really inconsistent this year, might not be the same Oral Roberts team that, you know, we've seen in the past in that way. 
So we'll have to wait and see on that. So, you know, maybe that's, you know, grading on a curve. Maybe that's not, um, you know, quite the series loss that, that it has been in the past. So Baylor was really in need of a weekend like this, and, and they absolutely got it. And you're right in that it it wasn't dominant. Um, you know, the starting pitching was just kind of okay. You know, it was kind of uh, the, 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 you know, what we've come to expect from uh, even Baylor last year where, um, you know, they were kind of getting it done with, with guys that, uh, aren't lighting up a radar gun and, and really don't, uh, the measurables just maybe aren't there in the same way with that you see with other regional caliber teams if they continue to win games. And to your point, I mean, they, they kind of play up in this tournament and I think they in general play up. And we came into the season talking about Baylor being a tough team to peg, but I was fairly confident that they had a pretty high floor. And I think part of that is part of that is some of the veteran leadership here. Part of that is Steve Rodriguez as a head coach. Um, I think what maybe has raised the ceiling a little bit has been, you know, what Nick Lofton has done with the bat. He's always been a, a a good contributor for Baylor. He's never been kind of the stereotypical light hitting shortstop. Like, you know, you compare him to a guy like Brandon Zaragoza for Oklahoma, who is very, very good with the glove and probably gets a little bit underrated with how good he is with the glove because he doesn't typically hit very much. Like Nick Lofton has never been that profile. Um, but this year he is showing a little bit of a sign that maybe he's a little more physical, a little bit, uh, going to hit with a little more power. So we'll have to see if that continues to track that way, but are the returns on that are good. So I think that raises the ceiling a little bit. If, if, if Nick Lofton is going to be a guy that, um, you know, can muscle his way to a big 12 player of the year type season, that obviously changes the trajectory for Baylor a little bit as well. So, you know, it's, um, I think this series or this, this tournament got Baylor back to kind of where, at least in my mind, where we kind of had them coming into the season, where could be a regional team, could just miss out. Uh, but coming out of last weekend, I have to admit, coming out of last weekend, I, I was a little bit worried that maybe, um, you know, they were a couple standard deviations lesser this year than, than we had predicted, and that maybe it was a team that just wasn't ready to compete at a high level. Uh, but certainly what they did this past weekend changed my mind on that. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And, and you know, I think that you know, what Nick Lofton has done offensively has been really impressive. I, I wrote about this on Saturday night. You can check that out over at baseballamerica.com. But to this point, half of Nick Lofton's hits this season have gone for extra bases. And, you know, that is really significant both for Baylor, which is trying to replace its three biggest home run hitters from a year ago, and also for Nick Lofton as he goes and, and you know, scouts are evaluating for him the draft in the draft this June. So those two things, uh, you know, kind of marry here in, in that, like, if Nick Lofton hits for a bunch of power, it's good for everyone. And, you know, he's doing it right now without really sacrificing a whole lot. And, you know, I, he's not the kind of hitter that would sell out for power. I, I just think that he's finding a way right now to, to tap into it in a way that he hasn't before. Steve Rodriguez may, said that, that Lofton made a couple of adjustments just at the plate to, um, you know, he, to, to, to just keep trying to, to get better. And uh, so far, so good. We'll, we'll see how long the, this power surge continues, but at least in the moment, it's, uh, it's very significant for Baylor, which, you know, has some power uh, up and down the lineup. And, and I think that's the way it's going to have to be. Is it, It's going to have to be a group effort offensively for Baylor that <clears throat> you, you, you're going to need Mac Mueller, you're going to need Andy Thomas to to support Nick Lofton, and if they're able to do that, you know I think you're you're looking at a a pretty good Bears team 
and, and one that that is going to make life tough for everyone in, in the Big 12 the, this spring. So on the flip side, Arkansas went 0-3, and the Hogs, uh, you know, finished out the tournament with a 3-2 loss on Sunday night to Baylor. They did it without Casey Martin, who was benched for the game. Um, things uh, things did not go the way Arkansas was hoping this weekend. They didn't get great starting pitching. Uh, they, especially in that Saturday game against Texas, uh, where Patrick Wicklander got knocked out really early. Connor Nolan was was solid on Friday, but um, you know nothing nothing incredible. Uh, the offense was okay, not not great. And, and so they they come out of here 0 and three, and you know after a really nice start to the season at seven and zero and an impressive four game sweep last weekend of Gonzaga, uh, Joe, w- what do you make of Arkansas as we sit here on Monday morning now? Just a tough weekend. Um, you know, Arkansas is a team that uh, I'm I'm not overly worried about moving forward. Um, but it's important, I think, to define that when we say when I say that I'm not worried about him. And, and this is going to be repeating something that we've said, uh, maybe even ad nauseum. Maybe we've talked about it that much. But Arkansas is the type of team that I, I really don't worry too much about them um, when it comes to the regular season. Uh, you know, the offense is good enough to really kind of uh, bail out the pitching staff on days when they're not at their best. And there is enough pitching depth there that they can usually piece things together uh, to win weekend series, to be successful in the SEC. Now, that changes a little bit when you start talking about, A, them going up against a, a team like, um, you know, like a Vanderbilt um, or, 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 or a Georgia, where you know that on the flip side, they're going to pitch really well and you're going to have to match them to a certain degree. It gets tougher there. And it also gets tougher when you come the postseason time where you're going to be seeing, um, you know, uh, Friday night guys, you know, everybody's best shot and you're going to be facing all good teams that all have, you know, Friday, Saturday, and sometimes Sunday guys who are real dudes. That's when it changes a little bit for me because we saw over the weekend that to your point, Nolan was, was pretty good, but Wicklander got bounced early. Um, you know, and, and Cole Ramage is a guy who's pitched in a lot of different roles in his time in Arkansas has never necessarily really stuck when he's been in the rotation. So that's a question mark. Is it, is it him moving forward or, or who else could it be starting games for them? Um, the bullpen again was good. They've got a lot of really good arms in the bullpen. Like that, that feels like a unit that's legitimately good. Um, but Bay, or Baylor, Arkansas is going to have to get some length, uh, in, in the rotation at, at some point, if it wants to be successful against the best teams on its schedule and in the postseason. And right now outside of Nolan, who appears to be kind of developing into the type of guy who you can, you can bet on that with outside of him. I'm just not sure where they're going to be getting that type of length. And I don't know that that's going to matter except here and there until May and June. But in May and June is with a team like Arkansas, who expects to at the very least be challenging to get to Omaha every year. That's really when Arkansas as a team is being graded is when you get to that point. Yeah. I I've been saying for what feels like months now (laughs) that I have concerns about Arkansas on the mound in terms of, you know, frontline pitching and the, the refrain from a lot of hogs fans has been that, well, it, it, the staff is incredibly deep. And look, it is. Uh, I was really impressed with a lot of the relievers that, that came out of the bullpen uh, this weekend. They, they threw really, really hard, uh, which is not surprising, uh, you know, there at Arkansas. But 
you have to get starting pitching at some point, or you have to rearrange the way you're doing things and set up that it's just going to be, you know, openers, bullpen games or whatever it is. Uh, but right now they haven't figured that out yet. And, you know, maybe Patrick Wicklander, you know, is able to, to reset and, and develops into a, a solid Saturday starter behind Connor Nolan in the rotation. And maybe Nolan continues to take a step forward. They're certainly capable of doing those things. But right now I, I'm just sitting here wondering whether they will. And I don't want to overreact to one weekend. They certainly have pitched pretty well earlier in the season. And Arkansas, especially the last few years, has been close to unbeatable at Bomb Stadium and much more mortal outside of it. So, you know, maybe this was just that happening on a little more of an extreme level. And, you know, Arkansas still can play well enough in the SEC to, to get a host, uh, to even be a top eight seed. And, and then at that point, you know, it's just a matter of, of playing well at home. And, and we know they're capable of that. But, you know, when you, when you look at everything that, that happened this weekend, in terms of the, uh, you know, especially on Saturday, a lot of things went wrong against Texas. And a lot of those things probably won't happen again. You know, that, that that was just a very, very bad day that kind of clouded the whole weekend to, to an extent. So if they can avoid, you know, that kind of thing again, um, you know, I, I, I think they'll be OK. Uh, one thing I, I came away really encouraged by with Arkansas is just how good Robert Moore is. I think that's that's not a take every watched uh his watch with what the freshman has done and, and just pretty pretty blown away uh universally and uh he's uh, he's a really good hitter he's a really good defender yeah, that was uh, a really nice mid-season or uh mid-year addition uh you know right before the start of the season to to get him to enroll early and and uh you know he he is a a bright spot on the weekend you know has to curse dad Played really well. Arkansas will recover from this. They do have a tricky series this weekend against South Alabama, and, and it's going to be important that Arkansas plays well in that because the, they start SEC play the weekend following at Mississippi State, and that's a tricky series, even if Mississippi State had a, a poor weekend themselves. All right, so before we continue looking at the action throughout the weekend in college baseball, want to uh, get a word in from our sponsor, uh, get Roman. If you were to guess, Joe, on average, how many days people in the U.S. have to wait to see a doctor? Uh, what what would you what would you think? I would say it's in the range of fourteen to seventeen days. Well, you would be wrong. <laughs> Americans, I'm familiar with I'm familiar with that feeling. <laughs> Americans have to wait around twenty nine days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities. So if you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit. It's a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. 
With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com BA for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com BA for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. A lot of frees there. That, that seems, like, seems like a good thing. People like free. Typically, yes. All right, Joe, you wrote about it last week that Georgia and Georgia Tech were moving uh, their series to a weekend. We, we talked about it uh, on the Thursday podcast that it was the first time in 61 years that, that the Dogs and Yellow Jackets were, were going to play uh, a three-game weekend series, and Georgia sweeps it. And uh, you got to wonder, is, is Danny Hall <laughs> trying to rethink the whole play out a weekend after after that weekend? Boy, it, w- it was a tough one. And, you know, it, it, the first game ends up looking a little bit close. And I guess maybe in some ways it was. I mean, Georgia Tech had a ninth inning rally on Friday that, that put him within a run and came up a little bit short. But, I mean, that, that game felt out of reach for a lot of it um, for a couple of reasons. One, Emerson Hancock was really good early. Now, that didn't quite hold. It was kind of a weird day for Hancock. But um, he was dominant early. And then Georgia put up five runs, I think, in the fourth inning. Uh, Tucker Bradley hit a massive home run. Uh, you know, a quick thing on on that real quick. Um, I'm prepared, and I tweeted this. I'm prepared to say that bat flips have, um, as baseball has kind of loosened its its bat flipping being, a, you know, a social moray in baseball, that has loosened a little bit last couple of years, which I'm all for. But now because they've been so prevalent i feel like maybe bat flips are a little passe and maybe they're looking for something else so I, I i'm willing to say that 2020 might be the season of uh standing at the plate for an extra beat and like gazing longingly at your home run uh, as the new bat flip um it's a little harder to do that with style maybe unless you're like kind of a lefty with kind of that you know smooth follow-through um but i think of you know a guy like kenny lofton who was not a big power hitter but he was really good about doing that kind of thing barry bonds famously I uh, did a lot of this. So, uh, you know, I'm here for it. If, if 2020 is the year of, of kind of staring at your home runs from the batter's box and on that one, Tucker Bradley, um, you know, in a, in a respectful, like, you know, simple way, he wasn't doing anything crazy, but, you know, took an extra second to, uh, to watch that home run, leave the ballpark and, and deservedly so, cause he really, he got all of it. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it was just a, just a tough weekend for Georgia Tech. Um, you know, that, that, like I said, that Friday game like felt out of reach. And then it, at the very end, they made a run. But the, the last two days were really just not competitive in, in, in any way. And it kind of continues to go back to what is Georgia Tech going to get um, going to get on the mound? Um, you know, from from Zach Maxwell, a freshman who um, has has looked really good in spots, but has, has struggled with control and. Jonathan Hughes, who's a fifth year senior, who's had such an up and down career. And, you're, you know, you're really rooting for him to kind of make good on the promise that he showed get when he got to Georgia Tech. But um, things haven't gone altogether great for him so far in, in court Rodig. And um, that, that was kind of the question with Georgia Tech and against a Georgia team that offense is not really their forte. You now, outside of Tucker, Tucker Bradley, who's been absolutely outstanding um, outside of, of him, um, and perhaps Ben Anderson, um, you know, it still hasn't been necessarily an electric offense, but against Georgia Tech, they really put up runs in bunches. And maybe that's a little reason for alarm with the Yellow Jackets. I, I'm a believer in the offense in particular. I mean, you they are still getting uh, good seasons from, you know, a lot of their biggest guys in the lineup. There's waiting on a couple of guys, no, notably Baron Radcliffe to come come around after he was so hot at the end of last season. So I'm a believer in that part of it. 
It's just we're asking the same questions we're kind of always asking about Georgia Tech and, and getting getting blown out a couple of times by a Georgia offense that we probably had just as big, you know, the question is just as big about their offense as we did about Georgia Tech's pitching. And certainly Georgia got the upper hand in that particular matchup. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I it wasn't so long ago that I was looking at, at UGA and, and wondering why they lost a game to Santa Clara and, and why it was uh, it, the, it had been so hard for them against Richmond and Santa Clara. And now I'm looking at it like, wow, you know, like you just swept Georgia Tech and, and did it very convincingly. And, and we have the Bulldogs up to number four in the Baseball America top 25. So it's uh, it was a loud, loud weekend for the dogs. And, you know, Wilcox was really good on Saturday. And, you know, it was uh you know, the potentially the, the best game of his career. And, and he did that, you know, there in Atlanta um, on the road, as it were. And, you know, if, if they're going to, if, if Hancock and Wilcox are going to pitch the way that they pitch, you know, that Georgia doesn't need a ton of offense, but it, it is now showing that, it, that its offense is uh, maybe, maybe we maligned it more, more than was necessary. And, Camp Shepard had a nice weekend again. It was it was it was all the the contributors that, that were expecting from Georgia, and, and it was uh, it was a loud loud statement, at, at least to me, that you know they uh, they, they came out and, and played that way. And as for Georgia Tech, you know it's it's concerning right now. Um, you know right at the start of ACC play that this is what happens, and now you got to get it fixed on the fly. But, you know, the, the tech offense, it, it's going to be better. I, I think the pitching will grow from this experience, and, and we'll see where, where the Yellow Jackets are at the end of the season. I'm not, like, terribly worried about them going forward, but they do need to make sure that it doesn't linger and that they're ready to go when, uh, when conference play um, you know, opens later uh, in the week. Joe, the the other thing about this is with Georgia up to four, we now have three SEC East teams in the top five. Vanderbilt at one, uh, uh, sorry, Florida at one, Vanderbilt at three, Georgia at four. Tennessee is ranked as well. And, you know, we're used to the SEC West being, you know, maybe the stronger division. But has that has that balance of power maybe shifted to the East this year? It sure looks like it. Um, when you talk about, the number of teams you have there at the top. And then, you know, we've got questions about some of the, the, uh, the SEC West teams. I think we, we kind of knew Alabama is still in a building process, but, um, That's you know, 12 and 0 Alabama, Joe. Well, I, yeah, you're <laughs> right. I mean, I, that was just, um, but, you know, I think we think that's still a program in a building phase. And then, you know, um, you know, maybe with what we saw from Texas A&M, uh, you know, they, they really struggled over the weekend just as a quick aside there. I mean, so, Perhaps the SEC East, at the very least, with the combination of those teams at the top of the rankings and, and a team like Tennessee really showing well, at least for now, maybe that balance of power has shifted. And, and the SEC West teams that we're talking about as, as being the, the team to beat in that on that side of, of the conference, I mean, are, are obviously Arkansas, who we already talked about, and Ole Miss, who we'll, we'll talk about shortly. And I really liked what I saw from Ole Miss in a lot of ways. Um, over the weekend when I was at the Keith LeClaire Classic, but it wasn't a team that I thought, oh, this is a team that's going to run roughshod over the rest of the division. It just it wasn't that for me. It's a team I like, but a, a team I don't love. Whereas there are 
three SECs teams that are really easy to love, SEC East teams that are really easy to love, and a Tennessee team that is at the at the very least uh, smoking hot right now. So, um, yeah, I think maybe we've seen um, a shift in terms of the SEC East being better at the top and, and maybe deeper. Who knows? All right, let's. Uh, I know the the show doc says something else right now, but you brought up Ole Miss. Let let's talk positively about the SEC West uh, for for a second here. Ole Miss goes into the Keith LeClaire Classic, hosted by East Carolina, uh, annually to to honor the the late coach who uh, who did so much for the Pirates and um, you know it's it's, uh, it's an outstanding tournament year after year. Ole Miss goes in there, uh, sweeps through a pretty solid field and is now up to nine in the top 25. First time this year, the Revs have, have been into the top 10 and suddenly they're the top ranked team from the SEC West in, in the, in the BA top 25. And, you know, we, we've talked about them before. We talked about what they did opening weekend against Louisville, but we haven't really talked about them a whole lot since because they've just been kind of just going about their business. And, it was kind of more of the same this weekend. It was just on a bit higher stage and away from home for the first time. And it, it seemed like, you know, Nikki and Hoagland were, were really strong for the Rebs, and, and the offense just did its thing throughout the weekend against uh, East Carolina, Indiana, and High Point. Yeah, it's a team that if they're going to succeed at the level they can, if they're going to reach their potential, I think it's going to be a, a, a pitching-led group uh, just with Nikhazy at the front and Gunnar Hoagland right behind him. Uh, you know, and Derek Diamond's had really good moments so far. So, you know, we'll kind of have to monitor that as, as they go. But certainly those first two with, with Nikhazy and, and Hoagland, you feel really good about. And uh, Nikhazy was, was solid against High Point on Friday. He had he had one inning that got away from him a little bit, but that was really it. And he was never really hit hard. He just kind of was in control. And um, so you, you saw what you wanted to see there. And then Hoagland, Hoagland was kind of a weird start because that was a two to one win against East Carolina. It was the, the showcase slot of this tournament Saturday evening. And, um, you look at the line and it looks like he dominated. Um, you know, it was just one run in, against East Carolina and I think it was six that he ended up throwing, checking it now. Yeah. Six innings, five hits, one unearned run, one walk, eight strikeouts. And you look at that and you're like, Oh, he was really, he was really kind of knifing through the ECU lineup. And, I can tell you from being there, and part of it maybe was that it was a cold night. It was really brutally cold. The wind was blowing. So maybe that was just part of it. There's kind of like a suffering element to it, but it really didn't feel like he was cruising. I mean, East Carolina was putting decent at-bats together, but it just felt like one of those starts where every pitch was really being fought hard over, but but Hoagland was just super hyper-focused on it, and you could see that he was locked in and that he was battling every pitch. He wasn't giving any pitches away, which all sound like terrible cliches, but that's what that game was, was kind of a manifestation of all those cliches that pitching coaches tell you about their pitchers, that, oh, he didn't have his best stuff, and, and he admitted that. He admitted as much after the game. Didn't have his best stuff, but, you know, he he really came to compete, and that's how they ended up winning that game 2-1. to one. Um, I also really liked the bullpen pieces they had out there with, with Taylor Broadway and, and Max Schofi and, and, and Braden Forsyth. Um, you know, Forsyth... Um, against East Carolina, like made it a little bit interesting walking a leadoff guy. They had an error. So like there was a, a little bit of stuff going on there in the ninth, but he closed out that win against East Carolina. So I, I really liked the individual pieces in the bullpen. I think that could be a strength offensively. It's interesting. So what they are doing really well. And what I think they'll be able to continue to do is drive the ball out of the ballpark, 21 home runs coming out of the weekend. So you do quick math that's seven home runs a week. And it feels like that might be an untenable pace, but I think what you can see 
is the makings of an offense that may be a little bit feast or famine. Now, I think what Anthony Servideo is doing, where he has four home runs on the year and is hitting well over 400, I think that is sustainable because you see, you know, when you talked about Nick Lofton not selling out for power, that's similar to what Servideo is doing. He's just hitting the ball with authority. He's also taking his walks. He has 12 walks on the year. And that was a big part of, you know, what I talked to Coach Bianco about on Friday because he walked three times in that game against High Point was that he's he's not – He's not jumping out of his shoes to try to hit the ball out of the ballpark or jumping out of his shoes to hit line drives into the gap. He's he's really just kind of the same guy he's been, um, but he's more mature. He's got a you know, he believes in himself and being able to play at this level. And that's kind of what has allowed him to to get to this point. So I think that is sustainable. Tyler Keenan being a big time power bat is sustainable. But then you look a little bit further down and you've got a guy like Cale Baker, who's hit some home runs and a freshman Hayden Dunhurst at catcher who's hit home runs and. You know, those guys are both hitting under 200 now. Both guys have really struggled with with swing and miss. Um, that's where, you know, those guys are going to run into some balls and maybe they get more consistent as the year goes on. But that's where I think the famine is, is you've got some guys in the in, in the lineup who, um, you know, show the ability if, if pitchers leave balls up or if they're facing an overmatched or a taxed pitching staff, they can run the ball out of the ballpark. I just, I think there are going to be ch- times when Ole Miss goes throughout the season and there's a lot of swing and miss and there are some low scoring games because they just kind of get buried under whether it's strikeouts or non-competitive at bats or, you know, swinging from the heels a little bit. I think they're going to be a little bit susceptible to that. And maybe that matures and changes as the season goes on. And certainly I'd be, you know, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong on that. But I, I was left kind of feeling like, yes, they've got some stars here, but I think there is going to be a little bit of, um, you know, to use a phrase again, feast or famine with this group as the season rolls on. Yeah, I I think in some ways that that isn't surprising. The the offense is so young, so new that that you know, especially early in the season, as they they work to figure some of this out, that that that's what you'd be you'd be looking at there uh, with the Rebels, and and it will be interesting to see. But I, I this was the first time they played on the road in a weekend, and, and they passed the test with with flying colors and with the the one-two punch of, of McKay and Hoagland, I, I think they can be a, uh, you know, a, a very formidable team there in the SEC. You also had Indiana putting on a nice show there in Greenville. They go one and two. They, they beat uh, East Carolina and high point lost to lost to the Rebs. But this is a team that now is, is off to a nice, nice start to the season. The, the reigning big 10 champs had a lot to replace so far, it seems like they're they're going pretty well. They they won one game on opening weekend against LSU and uh, had an impressive weekend last week in Mobile, and now you know go out and do the same in Greenville. They're they're starting to build something here. There's there's a lot of new faces, but it seems like Jeff Mercer has the makings of a really talented Hoosiers ball club again, which is really no surprise given the talent level that they have in Bloomington, but. Joe, what you saw IU last year, you've now seen the, the Hoosiers this year. What, what are the similarities, and and what uh, you know, what, what what are the expectations now for for this Indiana team? I think it's a really similar team, actually. I mean, even with it being a an inexperienced group in a lot of places, it, it's similar in terms of they're, they're going to hit for some they're going to hit for some power. And and by the way, I mean. They were a team last year that you really talked about. This, they got the swing and miss in their lineup got talked about a ton. And I think this year it's actually, at least early on, has shown signs of, of being better in that regard. So I think that makes them 
really dangerous. And, and you look at the top with a guy like Elijah Dunham, a veteran who's who's really hot right now, um, really limiting his strikeout and strikeouts and walking twice as much as he strikes. So I think that's a really great sign. Or a guy like Hunter Jesse, who's a new face there, who who hasn't struck out a ton. So it feels like maybe they've folded in a couple guys in the lineup. They're going to tilt that balance a little bit back in the in the other direction. One thing you, but it's it's not a surprise to your point that they're doing this because this is kind of what Indiana does. Also, because you know if you spend any time talking to Jeff Mercer, you come away knowing that he he and and I, I presume his staff are are just really kind of big picture thinkers about baseball and about the way they build a team. And you know, one thing that I, when I talked to any of the Indiana players or talked to, to Coach Mercer on a couple of occasions this weekend was that. I mean, this this success was great in and of itself, but they're really building toward if we want to play baseball in June, we have to play in June situations. And so that was going to Alex Box Stadium and playing LSU and and, and kind of, yes, they got blown out a little bit in that Friday game. But, um, you know, talking to um, talking to Indiana's players after the games this weekend, they said, you know, by Saturday, um, we knew we could play with them. And then Sunday we come out and we win the game. And um, this weekend, it was kind of more of the same. I mean, it was, uh, you know, the game against Ole Miss was um, yesterday. They, they really battled. They felt like a little bit short. And it felt like they, maybe that was just a, a situation where Ole Miss had a little bit more on the mound than Indiana does at this point, which is, is not surprising given SEC school, Big Ten school, and kind of what goes into that and what we know about the two teams. Um, but they, they played East Carolina Friday night in a good atmosphere. Um, that's a June-type atmosphere. And they really piled it on them. They got to Alec Burleson. Um, now, Alec Burleson is a particular matchup for Indiana that if Burleson's not going well, that's the type of pitcher that Indiana can really have success against because Burleson can't rely on raw stuff to get it done. He's really got to locate and he's really got to mix. And if that's just not going great for him, it, that kind of thing can happen. So I think that was a good matchup for them in that way. But it was a big atmosphere against a big-time competitor. They had a lot of success. They didn't let up. Um, and so – I think this is a team that's going to get better as time goes on. They're already quite, quite good. And, and that's even when you consider that, you know, Cole Barr and Drew Ashley, which are, are two of the guys that you can most set your watch to in this lineup are really haven't come around yet offensively. So we're still kind of waiting on those guys. And I think that's really good news for an Indian offense that, that I think is already really good. It's really deep. I really like the depth here. Um, you know, they've added guys like, like I mentioned, Hunter Jesse, Jordan Fusey, who's a grad transfer from Samford, um, hit with a ton of power at Samford. I think that's a big addition. Colin Hopkins behind the plate has been really durable. He's also done a, a reasonably nice job with the bat. So uh, there's that as well. Um, you know, mound wise, the guy that really impressed me was Tommy Summer. And that's going to have to be the case as time goes on. Um, and he, Jeff Mercer pointed to him as a big leader on the mound and, and said that, you know, Tommy's got you know, Tommy's really got free reign. If he thinks something needs to be said, like I've given him the ability to say it, like he doesn't have to go through me. He, he is that type of leader. Um, the stuff is just like a mid eighties fastball, but that changeup is really, really good. He locates well, he mixes it really well, disguises it really well, you know, to use the, the, the trite phrase of tunneling. Um, he does that really well with his fastball and changeup and that's how he's successful. And um, I like some of the things I saw from Gabe Bierman, and, and to me, those are the two guys, Bierman and Summer, at least in the rotation, uh, they're going to have to have success, and, and so far, so good. And, and Connor Manis on the back end, 11 strikeouts in five and a third innings this year, that'll that'll play. So 
They've got a good core on the mound. I think it's going to be more of an offensive team, but certainly more than enough pitching to put them back in a position to get to a regional in the Big Ten. And, uh, you know, maybe this is a team, you know, we, we kind of were penciling Michigan in, and that's still where we're going to go when we talk about Big Ten favorites. But um, maybe this looks like maybe the team that we were looking for with Ohio State. Instead, maybe it's Indiana as that second best team in the Big Ten and, and maybe competing with the Wolverines at the top of the league. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, we spent a fair amount of time on a podcast in the fall trying to figure out who Michigan's biggest competitor in the Big Ten would be this season. And, you know, we we came up with Minnesota and Ohio State. And I eventually talked myself into Ohio State as a top 25 team in the preseason. But we may have just overthought this. And, I, you know, it, it certainly seems that way that Indiana, which has been consistently at the top of the Big Ten, consistently a regional team, uh, you know, for the last seven, eight years now, that they're just going to keep rolling right along and, and that the talent in Bloomington is, is really high. And Jeff Mercer uh, did a really good job getting it out of them in, in his first season as, as head coach. And, and it certainly seems like that is uh, happening again this year. We'll, we'll see where it goes from here. But it was a, a highly encouraging weekend. Uh for, for Indiana, and really the, the entire month of February was was a really nice start to the season for the Hoosiers. Now, East Carolina went one and two. I'm not going to be too concerned about what happened to ECU this weekend. Uh, you know, playing Ole Miss is, in, in Indiana, it's a, it's a tough draw, obviously. Uh, Joe, what I'm more interested in is what your impressions of your, your first time in Greenville were. It's a really nice environment. Uh, Mike Lanano wrote a, a feature about the the atmosphere at East Carolina games uh, at the regional uh, a few years ago. You can dive into our archives and find that online. But what what was your experience this weekend, just in terms of of the the crowd and the jungle and and, and everything that goes into an EC baseball game? Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a, it was a great atmosphere. It was an SEC atmosphere, and I actually listened to a little bit of. Uh, Ole Miss's game yesterday as I was driving around doing some errands yesterday I was had the Ole Miss radio broadcast on their game against Indiana and and um, you know the, their radio guy who's who's been with Ole Miss for a long long time compared it to that he said this is this is an SEC type atmosphere they're, they're tailgating out there they've got the fans behind the wall which is the jungle and um, that's kind of what I took away from it and, and I cannot stress to you like how brutal the weather was you know, the first two days in particular, uh, mostly on Saturday when the, the, it was that type of wind where you walk outside and you just think that, you know, all the moisture has been sucked from your skin and your face is about to just, you know, freeze and, and fall off because just because it was, it was that type of day and they were still out there in force. Now in the stands, it thinned out as the game went on because of, of the, the, the conditions, but the jungle was rocking the whole time. So I give them a lot of credit there. And, I, you know, uh, they sent me pictures of kind of their setup on Saturday when I mentioned them on Twitter. They sent me pictures of their setup and they had some heaters going out there so that, you know, they were they were prepared for the situation, which I guess we can't expect anything less from a from a group that's that devoted to it. But um, so they were they were prepared for the conditions and they and they hung out out there and it, the, what, whatever they were cooking smelled really good, um, by the way, like you could smell it in the press box. Um, so I don't know what all they had going on out there and. I got an invite to go out there and hang out, and I just said I am I am way too soft to be out there when it's this cold. <laughs> like I'm, I'll be honest with myself, I am way too soft for that. I can't go out there. So maybe in a future weekend, who knows? They were they were very kind to invite me out there, but it certainly smelled good. So it was tempting, at least from that from that standpoint. But it's it's a they really support their team. Um, 
it, you can tell the community supports the team. I mean, Greenville is not the easiest place to get to. It's one of those places that's kind of, uh, you know, the term fishbowl gets used where, you know, ECU is the, is the ticket in town. It's, it's not a major city. It's kind of out of the way of major cities. Um, which, you know, is, is a home field advantage in and of itself. I mean, you'll notice on their schedule, they, you know, sometimes have to move Sunday games to earlier than you'd normally play a Sunday game because of just the amount of time it would take a traveling team to get back to an airport. Um, so that can be its own little advantage for them for sure. And, um, but it, it creates a situation where they're really well supported there. It's a good facility. Clark LeClaire is, is, is a nice facility. Um, they, they've really allowed the jungle. There are a lot of places that probably would not allow the jungle to a just exist in general, kind of outside of the main grandstand area and B to be as involved as they are. I mean, those people are draped over the outfield fence. Like they're not just, they're not standing on a platform or standing, you know, past a trench of the outfield fence. Like they are literally have their arms resting on the outfield fence. So they are very involved. They are right on top of the field. And it's I think that's a low great. fence too. It, it, it's not it like is. we're talking about like an elevate. No, it's, it's right there. That's, that's, no. That's yeah. Like, like an three, average three, four feet tall is all. Yeah. An average height person can like lean on it and put their arms over it. And they do that. And I think that's great by the way. I mean, you could, again, you could see like an overzealous athletic department kind of trying to curtail some of that stuff. And, and like certainly the jungle, uh, being rowdy but being respectful is is part of them being allowed to do that. If they were doing something that was compromising the competition or what have you, it'd be a different story. But by all accounts, they, you know, the visiting teams love them. I mean, Ole Miss ran out there and you know gave some high fives and fist bumps after their game on Saturday night. Um, you know, so they they kind of embrace the visiting players as well, which I think is a cool deal. So I enjoyed my time in Greenville. Looking forward to getting out there again, maybe when it's oh I don't know thirty degrees warmer. Um, <laughs> So that should be a lot of fun, too. But I came away pretty impressed with the atmosphere. ECU will certainly have better weekends. Uh, like you said, it was a tough draw. Um, but but I still like them as, the you know, a team to, uh, you know, contend to win the American. UCF is obviously in that mix as well. That should be a fun race as, as the season goes on. But, uh, yeah, good time in Greenville. Looking forward to making a return trip. Yeah, speaking of UCF, UCF uh, took three out of four against previously undefeated Cal State Northridge. Shouts to Dave Serrano. Uh, and so that's a really nice series win. They are up to uh, to 19 now in the top 25. And they'll play ECU to start American play in a couple weeks. And that series should be a lot of fun down in Orlando. Um, you know, the, that's uh, that looks like the top two teams in the league, but you know, Tulane continue to play really well this weekend, uh, sweeping middle Tennessee state through a no hitter on Friday night. They're, they're really rolling right now. And of course, UConn, you know, we, we think is a, a, a really solid team as well. So the top half of the American has gone off to a really nice start to the season. The bottom half, um, still, still fighting for it a little bit. Uh, Houston struggled this weekend Cincinnati worked way harder to uh, sweep Oakland than I would have expected. Um, USF did, did get a nice series win against Northwestern. So some things rounding into to form there, uh, perhaps. And, and then Memphis, uh, Hunter Goodman absolutely went off against Western Illinois. He hit grand slams on in each of the games. Each of the three games, he, he hit a grand slam and drove in like 22 runs on the weekend. I know Western Illinois is not the most impressive competition, uh, but I don't remember anyone from Tennessee who played them on opening weekend doing that. So uh, definitely shouts to, to Hunter Goodman 
for for putting up the the weekend that that he did. He's just absolutely crushing baseballs there for the Tigers. So an intriguing race in the American, as always. Uh, so we talked about Ole Miss, and I think by podcast law that means we now have to talk about Mississippi State, which went to Long Beach State and lost a series. The Dirtbags have now one series to start the season against. Cal, Wake Forest, and Mississippi State, a really, really loud weekend for Beach. Um, They won on Friday night. Adam Seminaris was outstanding, really shut down Mississippi State, who then bounced back and won convincingly on Saturday. And I know Joe was expecting uh, more of the same on Sunday, that the Dirtbags wouldn't be able to come out and finish the series. Uh, But they proved the haters, Joe Healy, wrong. And went out, won the series on Sunday, and, and you know come out with a, a big, big series win. Eric Valenzuela has the dirtbags rolling. They're into the top 25 at number 17. Just a, a fantastic all-around weekend out there in Long Beach. Yeah, I, uh, I hate them so much. I wrote about them last week. As a matter of fact, but you can read at <laughs> BaseballAmerica.com. Yeah, it's just it, to me the most impressive thing was that they, to your point, in all seriousness, was that they came back and won on Sunday because I think we we've seen those first two games. We we've seen that movie before like a team that's, that's playing well, but is expected to to maybe kind of um, maybe expected to lose a series or just, you're kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop plays well on Friday, you know, usually behind a standout starter, which in this case was Seminaris. But then Saturday they, they can't keep up. They lose a game. And then Sunday that the bottom kind of really falls out or they're just not competitive. And that wasn't it at all. They came right back and won that game on Sunday. And that's what's most impressive to me because that suggests to me uh, that it's a team with quality depth. It suggests to me it's a team that really is ready to make this season different than the past two seasons. And it's one thing to say that. It's quite another to do it. But they are really are walking that walk. I mean, the, the schedule they have is not quite as tough as they have had in each of the last two years, but it's still been really tough. And, that you know, that this is kind of what in previous iterations of the schedule – that then head coach Troy Buckley was going for. The problem was, you know, the team just wasn't winning any of those games. This is probably kind of what he had in mind, where now Long Beach goes into it, goes into Big West play knowing, okay, look, there's going to be a couple of series in Big West play that are going to hurt us a little bit from a metric standpoint, but we've given ourselves enough of a cushion now um, that that's probably going to be okay. So long as they continue to win games, mind you. So, um, but the pitching has been really, really good. Uh, Seminaris was outstanding again. Uh, Luis Ramirez, a freshman, uh, on Sunday coming out, giving up two runs in the first inning and then throwing up six zeros after that was really impressive. And, and I went on Mississippi Radio earlier in the week to kind of preview the series because I had written about Long Beach State. And, you know, we kind of talked about the scenarios that, that could play out. And one thing I said that, that's key for Mississippi State is to not – and maybe we said this on the podcast. I I forget. But – the key was going to be Mississippi State not getting frustrated. Blair Field is a big is a big facility. Adam Seminaris is a good pitcher. Um, and I listened to a lot of that Friday game on uh, the way back from Greenville. and I and again, I wasn't there. I haven't talked to, to anyone that was that was there necessarily, but it was a lot of quick at bats. And yes, Seminaris fills up the zone. You can't sit around and wait for a walk. He's not going to walk you. but, there was a lot of one pitch at bats, one and two pitch at bats, a lot of flyouts, you know, uh, you know, in relatively deep, you know, outfield that maybe in some other parks would get out or at least would challenge to get out that were just routine flies. And um, 
you know, so maybe it was some of that. Maybe it was just playing in a place that was unfamiliar against a really good pitcher and they just kind of let that get to them. And it's very easy at that point to get frustrated and start having poor at bats. Again, that's just me looking from the outside, wondering if maybe that was a little bit the case. And um, the other side was Long Beach did exactly what they've been trying to do and what Eric Valenzuela said they would try to do. I mean, they're not going to be anybody they're not. And you look at the stat line and sure enough, that's it. And, and yes, they got some, some power production from Leonard Jones over the weekend, but it was, um, you know, uh, you know, a handful of runs to win on Friday and then a handful of runs on Sunday to win uh, wrapped around getting shut out on Saturday. And that's just kind of, I think going to be the reality uh, of the situation. I don't think this is going to turn into like an elite offense overnight, but I think it's an offense that's good enough, certainly when you get into Big West play, when nobody is really necessarily going to uh, be super overly offensive, at least not based on what we've seen so far. Yeah, so having talked with Troy Buckley about the scheduling philosophy, like I know that the intention was that, I don't know, six years ago now, I guess it probably was, Long Beach went to... I believe in back-to-back NCAA tournaments, they went to Coral Gables and Gainesville. And Coral Gables and Gainesville in June, I don't know if you know this, Joe, but it's pretty humid there. It's the, they've got a little heat and humidity That's there. That's true. I, I have June. found that to be the case, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Long Beach State did not did not really handle that particularly well, was the feeling. And so the reaction to that was, okay, if we're going to do anything in the tournament and and get back to Omaha. We need to find a way to play home baseball games in June. And so the way you do that is you schedule really tough in the non-conference and the years in which you win, you will have uh, an impressive RPI and be able to host. And that is exactly what the Dirtbags pulled off in 2017. They have not pulled that off since. But that's what they're going for here. And I think one key difference with this schedule versus what we've seen in the last couple of years is that they have a ton of series at home. We, we talked about this with Cal Poly, that they also schedule very, very difficult. Talked about that with Larry Lee on the podcast. But in the past, they would go on the road a ton for those series. And this year, they get a lot of that at home. They they get those teams to come to them. And it's kind of the same deal with Long Beach. I don't know if that's some happy accident that like, just by the way the the scheduling fell that they got them at Blair this year, or if that was, you know, an intended uh, thing to do with the schedule, but that's, that's the reality. and, And they've been taking advantage of it. Now you don't get quite as much of an RPI bump for winning all these home games, but you know, we, we expect Wake Forest is still going to be a solid team, probably a regional team. Mississippi State, we're still looking at them as a really good team. So these are wins that are going to hold up that, that can propel Beach to that RPI you're talking about and, and beyond, potentially. That, you know, if they, if they keep winning games like this, you know, and, and, and run through the Big West, you know, we saw UCSB flirt with hosting a regional last year without probably the kind of schedule that, that Long Beach has this year. So, you know, I'm not saying that, that, you know, Beach needs to win like 25 games like UCSB did in, in Big West play, but if they did, they, they would probably be hosting. So, you know, we'll see where they go from here. But I, I think that, you know, 
playing that kind of aggressive schedule is intentional. But I, I what what I don't know is intentional is whether they did it all at home. If they did do that intentionally, I, I think it's uh, you know an absolute um, masterstroke right now. And you know they're in a position to get teams to come out to Blair Field. It's a it's a historic stadium. It's relatively easy to get to uh, by you know it's hard to get teams to Cal Poly. We, we've talked about that. It, it, Long Beach doesn't have to worry about that. It, it's very accessible uh, you know to teams from from the east. You know you fly to LAX, fly to any number of airports out there, and um, it, it's a it's a good spot for them to be for recruiting purposes. So they're quite happy to be out there and. So I, you know, this is this is a formula that can work, uh, you know, in the in the macro, and then on the field, it, it's a formula that can work too. Is you know, the the pitching is is really high end, and, and I've I've been very impressed by by what the Dirtbags have have done to this point. And then broadly speaking, in the Big West, the you know we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, wh- where does the Big West go from here? What's wrong with the Big West? Why why is the Big West so down? It's down because they don't win non-conference games. But this year, they're winning non-conference games. UCSB is nine and two. Beach is eight and three. Northridge is eight and three. Davis is seven and five. Hawaii has a winning record. You know, Irvine and Riverside are just a touch under 500 right now. And you know, we got Fullerton and Poly, two of the probably better teams in the conference, bringing up the rear at four and seven and four and eight. But you know, the teams that are out there winning games, uh, you know, they haven't played a ton of top 50 RPI teams right now, but I think that a lot of these wins will be, but just by winning games, they're going to help their own RPIs. And then that feeds itself. And then, you know, you're, you're able to be more than a one bid league. I mean, to me, it's really been, we talked a lot about what's wrong with the big West. What was wrong with the big West was they weren't winning non-conference games. And this year, at least several of these teams are going out there and winning in February, which is hugely significant for the league. It's kind of crazy to think about this now, but this is what makes the league work, uh, you know, in May when you're trying to get multiple bids in the tournament. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily take, you know, I think we, we talk about doing some work in non-conference and how that really impacts what a conference can do from a postseason standpoint. And it doesn't take a ton. Like, uh, Hawaii winning a game at Vanderbilt is huge, absolutely huge from, from their from their standpoint and in turn from the rest of the Big West standpoint. So it's not that you necessarily – I mean, yes, what Long Beach is doing has really opened up the path for them to be a postseason team and, and really kind of puts them in great position moving forward. However, like it, not every team has to do that for the rest of the Big West to be able to reap the benefits. You've just got to be able to pick off a team here and there and – some of that comes in midweeks because of the, the the geographic clustering that, you know, all of these teams are playing UCLA, for example, at some point. But the, the bigger thing is when you play these series early on in the season, just don't get swept. Win a game, uh, you know, because that, that will be a big help to you and the rest of the Big West. And I think that's kind of what we're already seeing here with what Cal Poly has done. Um, or something as simple as Hawaii winning a single game. Oh, they nearly won another one. Uh, <laughs> winning a single game at Vanderbilt. That's the, those are the types of things, the small things, that end up paying big dividends down the road. So since we're talking Big West, uh, let's, uh, let's touch on what happened at Davis <laughs> over the weekend. Things that I, I don't know if have been said on the Baseball America College podcast before. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about UC Davis. They played Loyola Marymount this weekend, and I, I keep saying this weekend, 
uh, in reference to one game because their first game took from Friday to Saturday as they played 24 innings. There's one inning less than the NCAA record, which you might remember as the Austin Wood game uh, between Texas and Boston College in a regional in 2009. But this one went 24 innings. They had to suspend the game on Friday night because of darkness Picked it up on Saturday. Didn't pick it up particularly early in the day. Picked it up like at one or two in the afternoon when they're scheduled to start their game. And I, you know, as as Joe wrote uh, on Saturday, I'm sure the thinking there was, well, this can't go on too much longer, and then we can just go play the other game. Well, it, it did go on too much longer. They they played like ten more innings, <laughs> and finally UC Davis comes away with a win. Uh, a lot of absurdities in that game. If you want to go, you know, read this, read Joe's story on uh, on all the wacky things that happened on the leap day in college baseball. This this is a huge part of it. But uh, you know, you start looking at time of game, six and a half hours, and all the players they used, and, and how many pitches they threw. But uh, Joe, you you looked at this game, uh, you know, a, a little more in depthly. What what was like your favorite goofy thing that you saw? Well, I think I I really enjoyed being able to phrase it in my story as one game that was almost the equivalent in length of three games that took place over two days, because that's that's exactly what it was. I mean, just my my, so my favorite thing in games like this is to look at the pitching side of it, because obviously and you always see those um, really extended outings. So UC Davis had four relievers all through four or more innings. Uh, both teams also had a reliever throw seven innings. Um, they were pretty efficient, actually, by the way, holding Christian for LMU through seven innings and got it done in 75 pitches. So, that, I mean, that's pretty impressive. That'll get it done, yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so I think that's my favorite thing there is just how taxed this this pitching gets. And I think we all get, you know, with these types of extra inning games, they always get to a point where once this is to me anyway and this is more of a psychological thing than any sort of like empirical analysis being done here but after about the 10th or 11th inning you just kind of get that feeling like oh we could we could be here a while because hitters start to kind of you know they're get, they're tired they're fatigued their 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 approach probably has gotten a little wonky they're swinging from the heels they're trying to be a hero um you know meanwhile pitchers are just kind of out there they they get a feel for this they start just pounding the zone um, and so these games do, do kind of have a feeling at a certain point, like, gosh, we're, you know, we, we really could be here a long time. And obviously this game was the, the physical manifestation of that. And of course, LMU comes back and wins both of the last two games of the series going away. So kind of an interesting, uh, interesting way that that series wrapped up there. But, um, yeah, I think, I think the, uh, the fact that they didn't, I, far be it for me that maybe there were other considerations, but, um, you know, waiting until when they did to start the game again on Saturday seemed like it says 2 p.m. local here in the notes. That seems way too late. Like that was probably just when they were planning on starting the second game of the series. And they just figured, let's just keep everything on schedule. But I don't know when you consider that, you know, you were going to have to play at least another inning. And then, you know, you'd have to at least turn the field over like a little bit. I know it'd probably be minimal, but you're not just like rolling into the next game right after that. Like there has to be some sort of like break. Um, so I, that just seemed a little strange to me, but it gave us, um, you know, it gave us kind of a little more absurdity, which I am here for, for sure. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting to see that game because the night before Stanford and Grand Canyon had played 18 innings 
And uh, to peel back the curtain here, Joe um, Joe writes half of the the Friday roundup, and I write the other half. And Joe had like filed his half to me and presumably gone to bed, and I was still like working to to put it up. And like Green Canyon keeps playing against Stanford and just keeps going and going. And I'm like, I gotta add this to like Joe's stuff because 18 innings felt like uh, an incredible amount of of game and it was they used like 45 players in that game and then the next day um you know davis and and you know lmu were just like no you know you think 18's long Let, let's just play six more after that like that was that was impressive and then bethune cookman and golf coast played 16 innings as well uh it was uh it was it was a weekend for for some marathon games 18 innings those that's i mean that's like part-time work yeah yeah, I mean, that, that's just a double header. What do you want? Yeah, I had 100% tapped out. Like, I saw that you'd had that the next day. I was I was looking at the back of my eyelids when that game ended, for sure. Uh, you know, I, so I mentioned all the, the oddities of, of Leap Day. And Joe, you, you, you and I disagree on this. I thought the LMU-Davis game was the, the craziest thing of the day. But you, you disagreed with me. You, you, had, you had a different favorite crazy thing that happened Saturday. Yeah, so I, I think we may have witnessed... The weirdest no hitter, well, witnessed. We were we were not there, but we we had happened. What maybe is the weirdest no hitter in the history of baseball? Um, uh, maybe not. That's probably a little bit extreme. Jason but, Stark, get at us! I want yeah, to know right, exactly. what the weirdest one is. Exactly. This has yeah. This has Jason Stark written all over it. But Liberty no hit Marist on Saturday, and no. So Noah Skiro, a name that you that you might know, um, started it off through five and a third innings. Um, but they they only won the game six to four. Marist got no hit and scored four runs. And what's kind of a crazy about that is there were some walks. Like Liberty walked some guys, but there weren't like an excessive amount of walks. And they only made Liberty only made one error. So it I, I was going back looking at the play by play, and it really does just look like Marist condensed most of their base runners into two innings, and everything went wrong. For Liberty, like walk, wild pitch, error, like run score. Um, so that is crazy. And I was telling Teddy, I was like, what's nuts about this is Marist actually pitches pretty well themselves. They're a team I actually like in the Metro Atlantic just in general. Like we were not that far off. Now, yes, Liberty scored six runs. So maybe I am. Maybe this is like a, a, a bridge too far. But like there was a very real scenario where Marist gets no hit and then pitches better against Liberty and ends up winning a game in which they got no hit four to two or something. And I think at that point, that might honestly have been the weirdest no hitter in the history of baseball. I mean, at this level, I mean, sure. It's something at high school wackier has happened or what have you, but um, at, the, at least at the college level up, I can't imagine a weird no hitter than no hitting a team, but losing the game when the opposing team scored four runs without a hit. Um, so that one really caught my eye. I mean, there were some other things here and go to the story to see a video on the one with Portland, Portland, uh, which is playing really well right now. More on Portland later in the week for me, as a matter of fact, um, walked off on a game when a Taylor made double play ball that would have ended the inning, uh, caromed off of an umpire, which allowed the winning run to score. I'm sure Stephen F. Austin was, um, not exactly <laughs> thrilled with that ending. Um, and then poor Harvard who played Alabama pretty close on Saturday, um, just had everything unravel on them uh, when they made a three-error play that allowed three runs to score. It was—I don't want to be unkind about it, but it was the type of play in little league when 
every subsequent throw just goes worse than the last. And the, the poor coach is like yelling from the dugout, just hold the ball. The ball never left the infield. Like, yeah. And three right. runs scored. That That's all you need to know about that play. Exactly. So, um, again, like I said, I don't want to be unkind, but it was very much like a little league errors type of situation on that play. So you, you feel for, for Harvard, who otherwise played pretty well on Saturday against Alabama. So certainly a wild weekend of college baseball, but I think that made it a lot more fun. It was certainly a nice little bit of levity on a Saturday night when, um, you know, Teddy was was buried under innings upon innings of baseball in Houston, and, and I was chattering uh, because of the cold in Greenville. Yeah, it was uh, it was a fun weekend, top to bottom. We had you know premium stuff. You know, we 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 had the uh, the Shriners, we had the Claire, we had some some really fun series, and then we also got you know some of this crazy stuff. So it was uh, it was something for everyone in, in college baseball this week. There were no hitters. There, there was there was a lot going on. So uh, it was it was a great time to. Uh, to cover it all this weekend, and, and hopefully you all had fun uh, following at home or watching all of the action. Uh, it should be another fun week ahead. We didn't talk a ton of uh, you know, West Coast stuff with the exception of Long Beach there, uh, but don't worry, we will next week uh, and probably on Thursday too in the, the preview pod because kind of the focus of college baseball is going to move to the West Coast this week. Uh, we have the, the tournament formerly known as the Dodgertown Classic uh this year the the dodgers are not a part of it so they're calling it the southern baseball college baseball classic or something to that effect but usc and ucla are are burning out uh tcu and vanderbilt should be a fun one ucsb goes up to oregon state in a low-key really good series pepperdine which is off to a really nice start hosts michigan so the west coast is uh you know we're, we're gonna find out a lot more about several of those teams out west um in the week to come here. So I'm excited about that. We will have all of that for you on Thursday's podcast. So make sure you are subscribed to the Baseball America College Podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, we're probably there. So if you can, uh, subscribe, leave a rating, review, let us know what you like. Uh, it does it does help us, and it also means that the the podcast gets delivered to your phone as fast as possible. So uh, there there are benefits all around on that. Uh, we are looking forward to uh, to to talking with you again on Thursday. We'll have plenty to discuss uh, both about the week ahead and and anything that might have transpired uh, in the midweek. So Joe and I will will be back here then. Uh, we want to thank Roman for sponsoring the podcast today. And remember, you can go to GetRoman.com BA for a free online visit and free two-day shipping when you go through that link. So remember, that's GetRoman.com slash BA. I want to thank Joe for joining me on the podcast today. I want to thank you for listening. We'll talk to you later this week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.